Welcome to Business Radio X and to our program, Justice at Work, where we empower employees through education and information about workplace rights. This is Kathy Harrington-Sullivan. I'm a partner with Barrett and Farahani. And on today's show, I am going to be talking with attorney Adian Miller. Adian is also with Barrett and Farahani. She joined us this year. And before she came to us, she worked in a variety of legal areas, including for the U.S. government, labor unions, nonprofits, a small plaintiff's firm, and a large defense firm. We are very happy to have her at Barrett and Farahani, and we're glad to have her on today's show. So welcome, Adian. Thank you for having me. This show, if you guys listened to our last radio program, this show is the second of a two-part series for September, where we are bringing you information about the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, which is the FFCRA. That was in our earlier show. And in this show, we're going to talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, and how that gets implicated in the pandemic, and also how, how it fits with the FFCRA and the benefits that people are getting under that act. The Americans with Disabilities Act and FMLA, which is a component or a, a, a piece of FFCRA, typically do have some overlap. But when it comes to reasonable accommodations related to the FFCRA and people's hesitance to sort of return to the workplace because maybe they're high risk or they have medical conditions, who's eligible to, to make accommodation requests in this pandemic and for what sorts of reasons? Under the ADA, anyone with a disability can request a reasonable accommodation, which would allow them to perform their job, so long as that sort of accommodation isn't necessarily an undue hardship with the employer. And under the law, the parties should work together to figure out what that reasonable accommodation might look like. So what you're seeing now with COVID is is some folks who may be immunocompromised or have some sort of underlying disability that makes them at a higher risk are able to request a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. I know that we're seeing requests, for example, work from home where that's possible. But what if the employer has decided, no, I want you here. And even if they have the ability to allow the employee to work from home, do they have to meet that accommodation request? If the individual and the employee can show that they do have a disability and it's not an undue hardship, then they do have an obligation to to provide that request or at least try to provide some sort of alternative. An employee doesn't have the right to any accommodation they want, but they, they do have a right to a reasonable accommodation. And so flat out denial of a reasonable accommodation request uh, where it could be granted could be a violation of the ADA and subject the employer to liability. And yeah, to go one step further, we also want people to know that just the request for an accommodation should not buy you a termination with your employer or should not and should not buy you really any kind of retaliatory action that that impacts your pay, your hours or your entire job. Right. If you make a request and let's say ultimately it's determined that there is no reasonable accommodation available, but maybe your medical condition resolves or for some reason you're able to continue working. They can't then terminate you or reduce your pay or give you less desirable job duties just because you made that request. Everybody has the right to explore this option with their employer. What if I am somebody who is, I don't know, 70 years old and I'm still working, but I know that as somebody in my 70s, I am probably high risk for for contracting the virus and I don't want to go back into the workplace. Can I ask for an accommodation for my age? No, so the accommodations are available for folks with disabilities. And if you have an underlying disability that makes you more immunocompromised or more susceptible to COVID, 
then that counts. Age is not a disability. You have protections under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, but those don't provide for accommodations. So that's not going to come into play here. So if I am somebody who is advanced aged, I've got to have underlying medical or disability to be able to, to take advantage of that. And that makes, that makes sense. How about if I'm pregnant? Do I have to have underlying complications for that? Or is pregnancy enough to get me an accommodation if I feel like I'm risking my pregnancy by going into a workplace where everybody's potentially got this virus? Being pregnant alone, if your pregnancy is healthy and and there's not necessarily anything that's going to make you more susceptible to COVID, it may not be enough to to qualify under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but a, a lot of the conditions that come with pregnancy may. And so that can be a little bit more fact specific, and that's definitely a point where you want to talk to an attorney. And so the accommodation requests under the Americans with Disabilities Act is that anything like the benefits I might get under FMLA? So for example, is it just for me or is it for family members that I might be caring for or needing to take time away from work or not, not risk? Let's say I've got a family member who's got a disability and I don't want to go to work because I don't want to transmit the virus to my family member with disability. Right. Unfortunately, the reasonable accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act only are available for the individual with the disability. And so concerned about exposure to other family members or perhaps needing to, let's say, change your work schedule to handle childcare issues or things like that, you're not going, there's not really going to be a remedy for you under the ADA. Let's back up one second here and just talk about how do I know if I have a disability? I mean, what does that really mean? Because I think also people get confused about Disability is used in a lot of different contexts, right? There's short-term disability, long-term disability, ADA disability, there's social security disability. So it's, that word gets tossed around a lot. How do I know what qualifies me under the ADA to be able to say I have a disability and ask for an accommodation? So under the ADA, there's very specific language. And so in order to qualify for reasonable accommodation, you would need to meet that language. So even being disabled under, say, your private insurance plan or social security, it doesn't translate. You have to meet the requirements under the ADA. And the ADA was amended in 2009 to really put the emphasis on whether or not your medical condition impairs a major life activity. And the language is actually substantially impairs. And so it's less about the actual condition and the name of the condition and more that showing that you have a condition that substantially limits a major life activity. And major life activities can include eating, (laughs) sleeping, um, studying, concentrating. It can be a a lot of things. The idea really is that it's, it's supposed to be theoretically a shift towards showing having the employee show how they're affected in their workplace by this condition and then having the employer trying to help them figure out what an accommodation is. And it's less about the label of the exact condition itself. You know, my understanding is that there are some conditions that are almost always considered a disability. So things like, you know, back problems or mental health issues, or are there any others you can think of that are most frequently going to be, you know, pretty much shoe-ins for for disabilities? Yeah. So immunocompromised is pretty straightforward. Any sort of depression or bipolar disorder, OCD, uh, PTSD. Um, We were talking a little bit earlier about pregnancy. So if you actually have a high-risk pregnancy, that's almost always going to be a disability. So those those are pretty straightforward. 
does it have to be a permanent disability? Like maybe it's carpal tunnel and I have trouble doing my work because my hands are numb. So until I can get the surgery, which who knows when that's going to be, maybe I work on a line somewhere and it interferes with my, with my, you know, my work on the line. So technically it's not a permanent condition. I could get the surgery. Am I still protected? Yes. Um, so the idea again is that that substantially limits the major life activity and the language says, you know, if it would limit your life activity in the absence of treatment during an active episode. So that's the technical requirement. Say you're diabetic, but your, your condition is controlled by medication. You still Mm -hmm. have a disability. It's just the fact that it's it's being controlled by medication doesn't take away that disability because if you went off your medicine, you would be having seizure. And so even if it's, not a forever, if there's a treatment in the future that might help it or, or, or whatnot, it could still qualify as a disability. Yeah. Which raises another, another couple of things that are almost always a disability, which is diabetes, which may be treated and under control, but still a disability and almost always disability. And then heart disease and cancer is another one that we've run into a lot where the employer doesn't believe that cancer is a disability, but um, we beg to differ on that one. That's kind of a biggie. You know, I think that's funny because I do have employers push back and they'll tell me it's not a disability because it's controlled, which is just very counter to the actual law. Um, And I do think that some attorneys or some uh, companies might be relying on case law from before. So there was Mm -hmm. a change in the case law. And this is, again, why it's good to talk to an advocate for you and not necessarily rely on advice from the employer um, because they're not always correct. Right. And as you said in our earlier show, that's why we're here. We are here because employers don't always do the right thing. And if we don't have the right answer, we'll find the right answer for you. But, but definitely call and take advantage of the fact that we've got attorneys ready to talk with you and walk you through it and get the facts and then tell you, do you have a case? And if you don't have a case at the moment, what are some things you can do to protect yourself in case things go further wrong, right? Right. And um, I think that's especially important with the ADA, since it is sort of a more intensive inquiry. It's very specific person by person. And so that's definitely something that's helpful to talk to an attorney about. Yeah, I agree. The ADA can be a very tricky area to navigate, I think, even for attorneys many times. So doing that as a lay person with no attorney help can be not only yeah. dangerous, <laughs> but it, it can cost you, you know, your job. Brings me to the essential functions piece. I frequently see doctors who are, I'm sure, very well-meaning, but who write their patients right out of a job by saying they can't do this and can't do that instead of, you know, kind of narrowly tailoring what their restrictions might be. How far does an employer have to go to accommodate? I know that, you know, under the ADA, you've got to be able to do the the essential functions with or without an accommodation, but, but how far does the employer have to go to keep you in that position? It's on a case-by-case basis. And so basically it works sort of as an affirmative defense. So if the employer is going to say no, they need to show it with an undue hardship. That doesn't mean employers don't say no all the time for no reason. (laughs) It's just that means that if they're held accountable for it under the law, what they're going to have to show a court is that it was an undue hardship. And undue hardship, the language is actually pretty harsh for employers. It needs to show that it's, it's going to make it very difficult for the company to function. And so I've seen accommodations that are very creative. I saw, I had a client who had a constant ringing in her ears and claustrophobia. And so she needed an office 
like an extra door in her office. So it'd be quieter, but then also a window cut in the door for her claustrophobia. And that was a reasonable request because the door cost like $200 mm-hmm. and she performed a very high position. So it's, it's on a case by case basis, but really the employer needs to show that, that this is going to make it hard for them to function as a company. So this hardship standard, it's not just, oh, hey, I'm going to raise my hand as an employer and say, this is a hardship on me. You really have to be able to show that it's a hardship on your business. And honestly, reasonable accommodations can can run the gambit, right? I mean, it can be, I need a, a screen reader for my computer. I need a, a chair that that you know doesn't hurt my back or those sorts of things that don't cost employers a lot. But, but what about if I'm asking for, I don't know, a, a complete other person to help me do my job? Let's say I can't lift more than 50 pounds. Can, can you not just provide me somebody to lift when I have to lift that much if I have to do that frequently? Again, it comes down to the actual you know, employer. So I, I've seen a case where a pregnant woman was working in a childcare facility and she needed help with babies that weighed more than 35 pounds. But they had a floater who was already employed there who went around and they just denied it to her and said it, it was too much to you know, make this floater available to her. Well, that's not really an undue hardship. If you're asking them to bring on whole new employees who are only going to be performing parts of your job, then, then that's, that's getting into the territory of, of probably being an undue hardship for that employer. And so that sort of makes me think of and I've actually, I've talked to, to employees over the years who want the company to bring in a translator for them. That's a very different prospect for a small company who may not have the budget for an additional person to translate just for one employee or, or a big company. Is that, is that where the difference really is, is what can the company afford? And then what is it that makes it reasonable for them in light of what they can afford? Right. What they can afford, um, what's reasonable for them. Um, it can also, you know, be if you're dealing with a larger employer, then they probably have a multiple employees that would benefit from a translator. Right. So that cost per, per employee starts to go down. Right. Um, and so this is, again, where we get into a fairly fact intensive analysis. So we've talked about older employees in a context of the employee wants to stay home, the employer wants them there. And, you know, being older and potentially more susceptible to the virus doesn't necessarily get you out of work. But what about the other extreme where the employer wants the employee to stay away? They view you as high risk because you're old or because you're disabled or for some other reason where, you know, they're trying to get you to stay home. They're not letting you come back to work. In those situations, the, the employer can make that request if they can show that they consider you to be a direct threat. In order to show that an employee is a direct threat, they have to show a significant risk of substantial harm, even with a reasonable accommodation. So the ADA, at least, is not going to allow an employer to exclude someone with a disability from coming back to work unless they can show that they pose a direct threat. And that threat can be either to themselves or to another employee. When the language of the law is significant risk of substantial harm, these are pretty high standards. So if the employee has COVID or I suspect the employee has COVID, I can ask that employee to stay home. No problem, right? I mean, maybe problem for the employee, but but as an employer, I can protect the workplace if I believe, really believe that they've got those symptoms or, or they've tested positive, right? Right. Well, I, I would say, yes, you would still need to show, you know, that they're actually a threat to other employees. So let's say it's somebody who works in a I don't know, a basement cell and never interacts with anybody. Okay. Well, in that case, um, you're not gonna be able to keep them coming to work, but if they're coming into a workplace where they are exposing others to this risk of COVID, mm-hmm. then yes, they can be asked to stay. 
So one of the places that we're seeing, I think, a problem, we're going to continue to see a problem is with teachers and the places where they teach. I think that, you know, a lot of schools have made up their mind that they're going to be in-person teaching and a lot of schools have made up their mind that they're going to be remote and some have made up their mind that they're going to be hybrid and I sort of see that as I said in an earlier show as a very much a state of flux and that as you know cases go up their interest in having in-person classes is going to go down but one thing we frequently get calls on is where the employer says no you must be here and teachers who taught remotely in the spring when this thing first hit because the school had the ability to allow them to do that and do have disabilities asked to teach remotely now because they know the technology is in place and they have disabilities and the school is just adamant that they want those people there in person so what about those i think that's going to be a continuing problem Typically, an employer can conduct the business however they see fit. And so you're definitely going to see, like, say, within schools that maybe charge tuition or, or have some financial justification and really wanting folks, you know, to be there in person, not wanting to have teachers telework. But I think it's important to remember that if you are an employee with a disability, and that includes teachers, so if you're a teacher who's immunocompromised and you're going to be a higher risk to return to work, then you have a right to request that accommodation. And personally, I think, you know, with all of the activity in the spring, you're right, like teachers have shown that they can work remotely and they can do their jobs and they can certainly do the essential functions of their jobs. The technology is there. They were able to do it before. And so I think you're going to run into problems when you have schools that are just cutting off teachers who have, who have disabilities from being able to work that way. That, to me, would be a, a denial of a reasonable accommodation that we could definitely investigate. Yeah, and I frankly do not see what the motivation on the part of the school would be, because, you know, if you're talking about a high-risk teacher who's more susceptible to getting the virus, then you're talking about putting the students at risk, other teachers at risk. So it seems like it would also be in the best interest of the school to try to accommodate these teachers. They can do it. It's just that in some cases, they just don't want to, and I'm not really sure why. I think this is something that's going to change, like you said, very quickly, because even the schools that have reopened, we've already seen, you know, the number spike, schools open for a week, close back down. I, I think this might be something where in six months, the legal landscape or, or even just, this, you know, the, the social landscape on this issue might look different. I think especially for folks with disabilities, though, I mean, if you're immunocompromised, getting COVID could be extremely severe. It could be life-threatening for you. Yeah, and so fatal. It's absolutely important to take it seriously and protect your health. I always say, you know, it's never worth a job to risk your life. Yeah. And I I have a a nursing background and I have friends in the nursing profession who have had this and they, and even healthy people have been, you know, taken to the mat on this thing as everybody already knows. And so certainly immunocompromised people are at much higher risk. And, um, and I think you're right that as the scope of the problem begins to be apparent, then the scope of the solution will be um, much more attainable because I think everybody's still kind of scrambling right now. Thank you, Adian, for joining me again to discuss this this topic. And I, I hope the information in both the first radio show, which if you haven't listened to that, that will be posted on our website and you can go back and listen to that one. And this second radio show 
about the ADA. I hope that's going to be helpful to everybody. I know this is already a stressful time for employees and there's understandable confusion about what rights they may have under all the relief laws that have been passed and all the revisions to those laws and the hits just keep on coming for all of us. But, but hopefully, like I said, we can provide and continue to provide good information and resources for people who are seeking answers. If you're an employee and you have questions about your workplace rights, whether that's something we talked about today or in a previous radio show or just, you know, whatever you have going on at work that you may want to ask us about, please reach out to us at Barrett and Farahani, 404-487-0909. We represent employees exclusively and we are the only firm I know of that provides a complimentary 20-minute consultation directly with an attorney. You can also go on our website at justiceatwork.com and self-schedule an appointment for your consultation with us.